All right. We want to welcome everybody here again this morning to our time together. Uh, so far in our study, we have worked through Scripture from creation all the way to new creation to understand justice, injustice, oppression, ethnic oppression, reconciliation, and our hope in Jesus Christ to overcome every trace of sin in this world. But having completed this biblical overview over the next few sessions, we're going to apply what we have learned to contemporary controversies in our country as we wrestle over questions surrounding social justice. So this will be our goal in the rest of our time together. And today, I'm wanting us to focus on what I call the three R's. Uh, corporate responsibility, repentance, and reparations. After all, we will not engage in these controversies very long without these issues coming up. So what we need most as Christians is a better understanding of these three R's from God's Word. Of course, my goal is not to resolve all the questions today or to address the specific ways in which these issues are or should be addressed this morning, but it is to see how the Scriptures guide us to constructive solutions and practicing biblical discernment in the midst of these debates. So with this in mind, let's begin with the first R, responsibility, corporate responsibility. And to do so, we need to continue focusing on this whole idea of sin. Of course, we all know what sin is, but as a summary, we can go to the Baptist Catechism, question 18, which is the question, what is sin? Helpful summary is the answer that sin is any want or lack of conformity to, or transgression of, the law of God. And so theologians consider this reality, that it is a lack of conformity to, or transgression of the law, and they then distinguish between two types of sin. First, you have what are called sins of commission. Sins of commission which are sins where you are doing the wrong which God's law forbids. Uh, now we see these sins, for example, through the Ten Commandments when they begin with, Thou shalt not, or you shall not. So when God says in the Eighth Commandment, You shall not steal, Exodus 20.15, and then someone steals, they have committed a sin of commission. Right? So that's a sin of commission, but then you also have what are called sins of omission. Sins of omission. And sins of omission are failing to do that good which God's law commands. Uh, so we read of this, for example, in James 4.17, where James writes, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So as we have uh, previously seen God say in Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, if you do not do justice, love mercy, or walk humbly, then you've committed the sin of omission. Uh, this was the sin of the priest and the Levite, right? As they, uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, passed by the dying man lying at the side of the road. They should have helped him, but they refused to do so. So there are sins of commission and sins of omission. 
But furthermore, we may or may not be aware that we've committed a sin. And so we can sin consciously, or we can sin unconsciously. Once more, we see this distinction taught in Scripture, as King David prays in Psalm 19, verse 13, uh, to God, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So these presumptuous sins would be sins which David did knowing they violated God's law and are sinful. Right? Sorry, not there yet. However, there are also unconscious sins where we don't know that we have broken God's law and have sinned. Uh, God himself made provision for these sins in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So we read in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 and 29, If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done, and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a, ki- a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. So there are some sins which are unintentional, but we are guilty of. And we may only come to know these sins later. Um, but what we see when we talk about sins consciously, unconsciously, and, and uh, sins of commission and sins of omission and, and all these ideas is that really these distinctions match our own experiences, Right? There are times when I know God has told me to do something in His Word, and I don't do it. Or, I remember when He has told me to do something in His Word, uh, but I don't do it. So, he, He can forbid something, and I do it anyway, or He can tell me to do something, and I fail to do it. Uh, sins of commission, sins of omission. But at the same time, I know that I'm far more sinful than even I recognize And so there are many sins which I have committed that I am not even aware of, which is why I pray for God to help me see my sins so that I can repent of them and receive God's forgiveness through Christ's grace. Uh, So this is a little bit of helpful background as we come to this question of corporate sin. Corporate sin. You may have heard people speaking of corporate sin, but what is corporate sin? Well, corporate sin is when a group of people sin together, simply put, right? Uh, Not all of our decisions are individually made, but we come together in a group to make decisions together. So let me give a historical example. In many American churches after the Civil War, they denied membership to black converts by writing this prohibition into their church covenants. So written into the very policies and procedures of the church's governance was the sin of partiality. And when these statements were agreed upon and voted into church covenants by a congregation, they were guilty of a corporate sin, right? Furthermore, everyone who chose to become a member of these churches by committing themselves to following these sinful church covenants participated in this sin. So however aware they may or may not have been of their guilt, they were sinning against God. And they were obligated to repent of their sin and revise their church government to reflect biblical doctrine and and, and practice and allow 
black converts into their congregations upon a credible profession of faith. Right? So that's the whole idea of corporate sin. What then, when we think of sins, what sins are we guilty of? Well, the sins which we have done ourselves and the sins which we have participated in with others. So if we have not been involved in personal or corporate sin, then we are not guilty of historical sins in the past or of contemporary sins in the present. That's a key distinction. Again, we may be involved in personal or corporate sin and not be conscious of it, which means that we are still guilty of those sins, but we are not guilty of the sins of others simply because we were born into their family or belong to a society with them. Now, let's see this. First, uh, let's read from God's law. Excuse me. In That's right, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Sorry, I'm getting used to the slides here. But Deuteronomy 24, 16. We read there, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So who is being punished for their sins? These individuals who are guilty. It's not because of my father, but it's because of myself and my own sin. But let's turn together now to Ezekiel chapter 18 and look at verses 14 to 20. Because here, the prophet Ezekiel expands on this biblical truth by comparing a son with the sin of his father. So Ezekiel 18, verses 14 to 20. What does God say then through the prophet Ezekiel? Read, If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, when he has uh, withdrawn his hand, uh, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father... Because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Right? And then verses 19 and 20. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So again, we see this idea that's being taught here in Scripture. Or, let's go to Jeremiah 31, verses 27 to 34. Because here in this passage, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of the coming of the new covenant in Christ, But he also speaks of the judgment and forgiveness of sins. So let's see what God promises here through Jeremiah. Again, we we often read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, but I want to go back to start with verse 27. 
So here we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge, but every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and their sin I will remember no more. So as we consider these passages of Scripture, what sins are we guilty of? What sins does God hold us responsible for? Our own sin. God holds us guilty for our own sin. So in considering our sin, we need to apply the principle of moral proximity. And as you may remember, I previously discussed this biblical principle in our fifth session. There we learned about our responsibilities and that our responsibilities are strongest for those problems that are closest to us. So I am responsible for my marriage and family in a way that I'm not responsible for other marriages and families. And I am responsible for my church family before my responsibilities to my larger community or my social obligations. What we see then is that the further away that we go in terms of our relationship or distance or time to the various challenges and problems in this world, the less responsible we are. But the same is true for our guilt and sin. Because I am the father of my family and serve as the head of my home, I am guilty for my personal sins and for my family's corporate sins in a way that I am not guilty for another father's personal sins or his family's corporate sins. Or to use another example, let's consider Christ's church. If I am involved in the sinful practice of my local church, then I am guilty of the church's corporate sin. But I am not guilty of the sins of all Christians today or through history. My guilt and responsibility for sin has limits. So Kevin DeYoung has brought some helpful biblical reflection here on this issue, and I'm really indebted to him here in what follows. But what he does is looks at the sin of Christ's crucifixion on the cross through the book of Acts. So let's join him together in the study and, and go to the book of Acts. We're going to walk through it briefly here. We'll begin with Acts chapter 2. So let's go to there. And in this chapter of Scripture, we have Peter who is preaching to the Jews who have gathered together on the day of Pentecost, right? So Acts 2. Peter's preaching, and what do we read there in verse 14 as this begins? Acts 2, verse 14, he is speaking to 
to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So there's the audience. There's who he's preaching to. But now what does he say to them in verses 22 and 23? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And then down in verse 36. Peter says at the end of the sermon, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, of course, it was actually the Roman government who nailed Christ to the cross. But the Jews that gathered in the city of Jerusalem were also involved as they called for his crucifixion and were responsible for his death. Now notice that while not every single Jew living in Jerusalem may have been involved directly in Christ's death, enough of them were responsible for this corporate sin to be called out against the city as a whole. Right? Now let's turn to the next chapter, Acts chapter 3. Here Peter once again preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem. And after healing a lame man in the city, what does he say to those gathered in verses 11 to 16? Now, as the lame man who was healed uh, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So once again, we see they are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Or let's consider chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, when Peter addresses the Jewish leaders of the city in the Sanhedrin. So Acts 4, verses 8 to 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has, this been, has he has been made well? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So they were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Or let's go forward to chapter 5, verses 29 to 30 where Peter speaks to the Jewish high priest and the chief priest. So Acts 5, again, verses 29 and 30. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. So they are guilty of Christ's murder. Clearly, this corporate sin includes the Jews living in the city of Jerusalem, which Christ has crucified, and they are guilty for his death. But what happens when Peter goes outside of Jerusalem? Things start to change. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, where Peter preaches to the Roman centurion and the military, uh, who's the military leader there, Cornelius, uh, is a Gentile there with his family. So Acts 10, uh, verse 39. What do we see? Peter says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, notice, whom they killed, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. So they, the Jews in Jerusalem, killed Christ by hanging him on a tree, right? Not a Gentile who was involved with the government of the time. But now let's consider the Apostle Paul's ministry as he preached to the Jews. Uh, Acts chapter 13. In this chapter, Paul came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So what does he say to the Jews in Antioch? Acts 13, verses 26 to 28. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate, and he should put him to death. So again, who is responsible? Those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers are here responsible for Christ's condemnation under the hands of Pilate. Notice that the Jews in the city of Antioch are not included in this sin. So they are not blamed for what the Jews in in Jerusalem did to Christ. And it's the same through the rest of the book of Acts. Those guilty of the sin of Christ's crucifixion are the Jews and those dwelling in Jerusalem for what Jesus did. Uh, was when Jesus was executed. So you can go to Acts 17, verses 10 to 12, when Paul's at Berea. He never accuses the Jews in the synagogue there of killing Christ. Or Acts 18, verses 1 to 6, where Paul is in Corinth. He never speaks to the Jews of their corporate responsibility for Christ's death. Or Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, when Paul is in Ephesus. Again, he never blames the Jews there for the crucifixion of Christ. But what about when Paul later returns to Jerusalem and he speaks to the Jews? This is all the way from Acts chapters 21 and 26. Now he's back in the city where Christ was crucified, speaking to the people, right? The Jews who were responsible, or at least they were there in the city. We never see Paul preaching against the Jews that then lived in Jerusalem that they are guilty of having Christ nailed to the cross in their city. So even when he stands before the Jewish leaders of the city council in chapter 23, 
he doesn't condemn them for crucifying Christ. He doesn't blame the government leaders who were ruling during this time for killing Jesus, whether it's Felix in Acts 24, Festus in Acts 25, or Agrippa in Acts 26. They were all involved in the Roman government, which had condemned Jesus to death years before, yet Paul did not hold them responsible for what happened. You see, neither the Jews' ethnic identity, nor their social environment, nor their religious or governmental authority meant that they shared in the corporate sin of Christ's death on the cross. This was limited to those who were involved when Christ was crucified on that Friday morning in Jerusalem. Let me repeat, God holds us guilty for our own sin. But at the same time, We shouldn't draw a wrong conclusion from this biblical truth. Corporate sin can extend across time and space. So we could turn together to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, when Jesus curses and condemns the Jewish scribes and Pharisees. Listen to his words as he speaks to them in verses 31 to 36. So Matthew 23, verses 31 to 36. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, Did these Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, actually murder the prophets of the Old Testament? Of course, the answer is no. This is here called their father's guilt. Yet, they are condemned for murdering the prophets from the righteous Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And while there's some confusion about who Zechariah is, he seems to most likely be another prophet from the Old Testament period. So what we find then is in the scribes and Pharisees' treatment of Christ, they are revealing the same heart of murderous hatred which had continued from their Jewish fathers who killed the prophets. Therefore, they join in the guilt of their fathers. Or we can go from Matthew 23. Uh, Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, verses 51 to 53. Because here we see this responsibility for corporate sin again. Now in Acts 7, we have Stephen, who is given the opportunity to preach to the Jerusalem council, which is led by the high priest before he is martyred for his faith. But what does he say to the Jews here? Again, Acts 7, with verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So do you see the continuation of this sin then from generation to generation? 
But even in these passages, what do we see of those who are guilty? They too are involved in the sins of their fathers. This is the consistent teaching in Scripture about our responsibility for sin. Right? So there's a lot there to discuss when we talk about corporate responsibility. But it's essential that we understand these things as we come to the second R, repentance. Repentance. And let's return to the Baptist Catechism to explain repentance. Again, here we come to question 94. What is repentance unto life? Answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. In other words, repentance is turning away from our sins and turning to Christ who promises to forgive our sins and guide us into righteousness. So we recognize our sin and what our sin deserves and confess our sin to God by pleading the blood of Christ. But just as there is personal sin and corporate sin. So there is personal repentance and corporate repentance. If we have sinned as a group, then we can repent together as well. But here's where things can get tricky. Since I am an American citizen, should I repent of the injustices carried out in our nation? Since I am a white man, do I need to repent of the racism which exists in our society? Since I am a Christian, should I repent of the sinful mistreatment of black people by churches and Christians? Well, my answer to these questions depends on my responsibility for these corporate sins. If I have been involved in these sins, whether intentionally or unintentionally, then God commands me to repent. But if I am not guilty of these sins, then I cannot repent for the sins of others. True corporate repentance requires those who committed or perpetuated the sin to join together in repentance. It does not require those who are not involved in carrying out a corporate sin to accept responsibility for it and repent. Yet we regularly hear calls today for repentance simply because of the group that we belong to rather than because of our contribution to the corporate sin. And many Christians today are now repenting for a corporate sin on behalf of others while not admitting their own involvement in this sin. Brothers and sisters, this is not right. Now, there are a few examples of corporate repentance in the Old Testament, which which advocates will often turn to. So let's briefly consider the uh, three, the main three here. Uh, We have Ezra 9, Verses 5 to 15, Nehemiah 1, verses 4 to 7, and Daniel 9, verses 1 to 9. First, then, let's look together at Ezra, Ezra chapter 9. Uh, Ezra 9. Here, after Israel has come under the judgment of God for their sinfulness and is removed from the promised land by the Babylonians, God allows some of his chosen people to return. And this includes Ezra, the priest who seeks to lead God's people in following God's law. But when he recognizes that they haven't separated from the peoples of the land as God had commanded, but had intermarried with them, he cries out to God in prayer. 
So let's read together Ezra 9, verses 5 to 8. And the evening sacrifice, or at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen together, or have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we are kings in our lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Let's see, how far did I want to go? That's, that, that, that's a good place to stop. What the, but what did we see in verse 7, looking back? Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. So Ezra includes himself among those who have been very guilty for this corporate sin since he had allowed this sin to take place. So he was involved in their sin and needed to repent of it together with the other Jews who had sinned. Well, let's go to the next book, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. This takes place during the same time as Ezra, but where Ezra was a religious leader, Nehemiah is involved in the house of the king of Babylon. And when he hears about what was taking place in the city of Jerusalem, he also prays to God. So listen to the words of his prayer. Again, Nehemiah 1, verses 4 to 7. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So notice what he says. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah here, as he is confessing the corporate sin of Israel, he includes himself because he too was guilty. Or finally, let's go to Daniel 9. Daniel 9, uh, verses 1 to 19. We won't read this all together, but here the prophet Daniel recognizes a prophecy of Jeremiah, which is about to be completed, and so he prays to God. But let's read together verses 3 to 7. Daniel writes, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. 
Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. So what do we see in verse 5? We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. But now let's skip down to verse 20. Verse 20, Daniel writes, Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Here then Daniel confesses participating in their corporate sin against God. So as I hope is becoming clear by now, corporate repentance is the fruit of the Holy Spirit being at work as the lives of believers, in the lives of believers, as they confess to God their involvement in corporate sin and trust in Christ for their forgiveness and cleansing. So we are not responsible for the sins of history, which we haven't been involved in or, or taken part of in the injustices of the past. And we cannot repent of sins which we are not responsible for. Still, this doesn't mean there is nothing we can do when we hear about the tragedy of corporate sin. Once more, Kevin DeYoung is helpful. So let me quote from him again. He says, I can think of at least four things we might mean by making an apology for something in the past. First, there's recognition where I acknowledge what happened and I see the negative effects of those sins of omission or commission. Then there's also remorse, where I feel terrible for what has happened. There's also renunciation, where I reject what has taken place in the past and repudiate those beliefs, words, thoughts, or actions. And finally, there's repentance, where I have sinned against God and will turn away from this evil and strive after greater obedience to God's law in my life. So, each aspect of apology has its place, Young says, but all may not be present in every instance of saying, I'm sorry. Sometimes we get tied up in knots by making public apologies of corporate sin because we are unsure of how to repent of sins we didn't commit. When a more appropriate and equally salutary step might be to recognize what happened and express our remorse over what transpired in the past while utterly renouncing those attitudes and actions wherever they exist in the present. Right, so we've committed. Uh, we we've gone through so far. Response the two R's: responsibility and repentance. Um, but that brings us to reparations, and uh, maybe this is my way of getting you to come back next time we meet. But we are running out of time, so next time we come together, we'll look at the third R: reparations. Uh, as we continue considering this whole question more biblically and uh, in future weeks, thinking through these things more fully. All right, so I uh, appreciate you being with us and look forward to continuing next time.